This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Today, I'm telling you this story about Robert Durst. And I already have a thing that I want to say for the cold open. Is it when I asked if it was Fred Durst or the singer of Limp Bizkit or whatever I did? No. Did I? Uh, yeah, now it is. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. I Marco Polo you and I was like, isn't that the singer of Limp Bizkit? And you about fell out. And I realized immediately that. No. Oh, dang it. <laughs> Yeah. Robert Durst, isn't that the singer from Limp Biscuit? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Look, I think the main thing that should be clear about Robert Durst, besides the fact that he's not Fred Durst, is that (laughs) he's not crazy. He's diabolical. Ew. You know, even that word. Wait, real quick, back to Fred, though. (laughs) You strike me as someone who maybe had a Fred Durst crush. Can you confirm or deny? Oh, I was going to be a nookie girl for Halloween. (laughs) Ew. What is that even? What does that mean? What's a Look, nookie girl? I have, you know, the girls from the video that had like the baggy jeans and the little red top and the hat. No, but now I'm good. <laughs> it's good this isn't a company phone because I feel like I'm not. <laughs> just sounds inappropriate. <laughs> I did it all for the nookie. Yeah. Major crush oh. on Fred Durst, a uh, little 14-year-old Kristen. Ugh. Okay. Back to the, back to Robert. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. 
But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. So I have been working on this episode for six, seven, eight months. Why? This story is just a, a doozy. It's a doozy. It's so big. There's so much, but it's so good. You are the definition of efficiency, by the way. <laughs> I started working on this over the summer and then worked a little bit on it over Christmas break. And then I was finally like, I'm just going to do it. So over on the Patreon, you know, we're doing the true story behind movies. Like we've done the true story behind Compliance, Hustlers, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And originally, this was going to be a Patreon episode. Also, sign up for our Patreon. <laughs> $5 gets you all those I knew all those bonus episodes. <laughs> $7 gets you mini creeps. We just recorded our nostalgia mini creep that was not planned at all. <laughs> Whoops. 40 minutes of us talking about the 90s. <laughs> Look, don't be getting me feeling some type of way, okay? On mic cuz that's uh and then you get a sticker in a card with our autographs at that $7 level. And then we've also got a $10 level that can get you 20% off of merch. So Sign up for our Patreon if you want to. That'd be great. But this was originally going to be a Patreon episode. But pretty early on, I realized there's no way I could do this in one part. There, It's got to be oh, two no. parts. And uh, I didn't want people to have to wait a month for the second part, you know, because we have one bonus episode a month. And Well, you don't mind making me wait a week, <laughs> which is rude. I do not mind uh, making you wait a week. So today I'm telling you part one of the true story behind the movie All Good Things. And this was a 2010 movie about a guy named David Marks. It was played by Ryan Gosling. And David in the movie is the wealthy son of a New York real estate tycoon who develops a volatile relationship with his wife, played by Kirsten Dunst, and becomes suspected of a series of murders, as well as his wife's unsolved disappearance. But the movie was actually inspired by the life of a man named Robert Durst, and it is with great pleasure that I tell you this wackadoo story today. So the film, All Good Things, it was directed by a guy named Andrew Jarecki. And in a twisted turn of events, Robert Durst saw the movie based on his life, that was basically about him being suspected of all these murders, and he loved it. He loved the film. <laughs> and he called Jarecki, telling him that he'd be willing to sit and do an interview. So Jarecki interviewed him for more than 20 hours over the course of several years, and those interviews ended up being the six-part documentary, The Jinx, which is on HBO. It's the main source I used here. 
Another big source was the podcast Presumed Guilty, which I'll talk more about in part two. For this story, we're going to start in Galveston, Texas. Oh, hell yeah. In 2001. Galveston is an island connected to Texas. It's just south of Houston. by, And it's connected by a bridge that's about a mile and a half long, as you know. And at the time, I was literally like right across a bridge, probably jamming in sync or eating 3D Doritos and watching the Fast and the Furious. 3D Doritos? We just did a nostalgia (laughs) one. But I for sure, whatever I was doing, had no idea that this was happening just 30 minutes away. Yeah, me either. I've never heard of this, so. (laughs) It started with a 911 call into Galveston PD. A 13-year-old boy called to tell them that he had just seen something horrific. And some sources said the boy was as young as 11. And this, I'm just going to warn you right here. This is the worst part of the story. It doesn't get worse than this. All right. This is as bad as it gets. Yeah, I'm not going to take your word for it. (laughs) The boy had been fishing in the Galveston Bay, which is the body of water in between Galveston and Texas and the Texas coast. And he was just, you know, minding his own business out fishing when he spotted something in the water. That something was a human torso. No head. Please be a jellyfish. Please be a jellyfish. Please be a jellyfish. I'm sure that's what he was saying to himself. No head, no arms, no legs, just the torso. Yeah, we know what a torso is. You can skip that. Police police were sent out immediately, and soon Detective Gary Jones arrived on the scene. And this part is really gross, so prepare yourself. When he got there, he realized it would be really difficult to get the torso out of the water because there was, like, nothing to hold on to, nothing to grab. So to pull it out, and by God, this is either quite a commitment to the job or just completely over the line, the detective had to put his hand down the neck hole and grab it by the breastbone to pull it out of the water. That is, like, not other duties as assigned. Like, it's just not. Agreed. In the documentary, he said, how else was I going to get it out? And I said, sir, I can think of any number of ideas. A large net is the first one that springs to mind. I would have just been like, not today, (laughs) Satan. And I would have put in my two-week notice right then. (laughs) Near the body or near the torso, they also found several black trash bags floating in the water. And they were trying to figure out what was in them. But I think in their heart of hearts, they knew what they were going to find because they weren't ripping into the bags. <laughs> they weren't like overly mm. eager to check the contents of that. Yeah. And one of the bags had like small holes torn in them, allowing them to look inside. And they could see that they had several bags, bags and bags. Yeah, okay, I'm like very nauseous. Full of body parts. We just started. Once they'd looked at and cataloged all the body parts, they could tell they had one human body, a man, that had been dismembered. And they could even tell, like, what order it happened in. The dismemberment started with the right leg, then the left leg, then the left arm, the neck, and the right arm. Like, a horrific circle. How did – I wonder – I mean, I don't wonder, but that seems very – my uh, my friend, she actually mm-hmm. was an intern with Galveston PD at this time. She was like 19 years old. <gasps> and she told me she saw the black bags at the morgue after they had been collected. <gasps> she was like with one of the detectives and she said she got a good look and a good smell of them. 
And she was like, that was the beginning of the end of my career in law enforcement. Yeah, like you don't unsee that or unsmell it. No. Detective Cody Caslis was put on the case. He had previously investigated shootings, homicides. He'd been part of thousands of investigations, but none of them involved a headless, dismembered torso. He figured it would be interesting, but he had no idea what he was stepping into. Police were able to account for every part of the body except the head, which hadn't washed up with the rest of the bags. They searched for it for several days, but they never found it, and they were concerned about not being able to identify the body without it. But they lucked out in a couple of different ways. In one of the bags, they found a newspaper that happened to have an address on it, 2213 Avenue K in Galveston. All the streets are like letters, and then they go across with the numbers. Uh Uh-huh. They also got lucky when detectives were able to roll a fingerprint from one of the hands in the trash bag, and they got a match to a man named Morris Black. So they had the identity of the victim. Now they just needed to figure out how he ended up in the bay in pieces. It's interesting to me that a newspaper that was in a bag in water would be intact enough to like get an address. Yeah, I guess because it was like in the bag and it was like that sticker on it, you know? And I don't think they'd been there for very long. So detectives then went to the address from the envelope, 2213 Avenue K, which was a small house that had been converted into several apartments. They spoke with the landlord, a man named Klaus Dillman, and he said he had tenants living in both apartments. Unit one was rented to a 71-year-old man named Morris Black, who was their victim, so they were definitely on the right track. They were hoping there would be a clue with the second tenant, But Klaus said the only person living there was this little old mute lady named Dorothy Siner. But Klaus said she was rarely there because she was always traveling. The house is a pretty typical style for Galveston. There's a chain link fence around the front of the house with a gate to walk through, and then a few steps up to a porch that runs the length of the house. When investigators went to the property, they found a trail of blood starting at the gate and leading all the way up to the front door and continuing inside the house. This was like also before, I was just thinking about when you were describing the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. This was before Katrina and Ike and Harvey and all Mm -hmm. that. I mean, I know there have been, you know, lots of hurricanes way back, but this was like before a lot of the damage and like stuff was destroyed. Yeah, yeah. This house is still there. crime heyday. The house is still there. I've I've been there. Of course. Uh, Of course. (laughs) No doubt. When they walked inside, there was a hallway that separated the two apartments, which were on either side of the hallway. And it looked like blood had been cleaned up from the common hallway. And the trail led right to the door of apartment two, little old mute lady Dorothy Siner's apartment. Detectives wanted to see inside apartment two, but they had some trouble getting a search warrant because they didn't have enough probable cause, which I'm like, a trail of blood to the front door is not probable cause. Yeah, I mean... There was a trash can on the back porch and they wanted to search that, but the DA told detectives that they'd need a search warrant for that. You can search trash that's been put out to be collected because that's considered an abandonment, but this trash wasn't out to be collected yet. It was like on the back porch. So you could like dig through someone's trash bags, like if they're sitting on the curb? Yeah. I guess that's like people pick up furniture. Yeah. It's, It's weird and stalkerish unless you're the police, but yeah, you can. But detectives called back an hour later, and when you know it, the trash had been taken out to the alley somehow. And so now they could go through it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious that the cops took the trash can and put it in the alley. But inside that trash can, they found the most significant evidence so far. A gun? The head? N- well, no. no. A gun, the magazine for the gun, and an empty shell, all right there in the trash. Once they found that gun, they were able to get a search warrant for apartment two, Dorothy Signer's apartment. The apartment was old and run down, but it had been kept pristine by the tenant. It was described as unusually neat. But what was really unusual was the drop cloths that were spread out all over the floor of the kitchen. Oh, curious. Curious. Police pulled the drop cloths up and they saw these cuts all over the laminate flooring. So they pulled the flooring up and wouldn't you know it, giant blood stain underneath the floor. They wouldn't know for sure if this was Morris Black's blood until they got the results back from the lab, but they were pretty certain that they just found the place where Morris had been dismembered. Yeah, all signs point to yes. So detectives talked with Klaus, the landlord, more about the tenants, and he said, you know, little old lady Dorothy had moved in in April, and she was a fantastic tenant. She was quiet on account of her being mute. He hardly ever saw her, and she paid her rent in advance. You know, all great things that a landlord wants in a tenant. There were several things that were making alarm bells go off for detectives about this little old lady, though. First off, Klaus said she's hardly ever there because she's always traveling. But if she's got all this money to pay her rent in advance and then travel for months on end, what's she doing renting this old, run-down apartment? Yeah, so traveling i i'm not saying that you can't travel if you're mute but that does seem like if you're just doing it constantly all the time like who are you going with where are you going i don't know right like it seems difficult it doesn't seem like the typical lifestyle you'd expect yeah yeah also there were very few personal items in the apartment and nothing to suggest that a woman lived there so detectives asked klaus more about dorothy they asked him if he thought she was attractive And I'm not sure if they'd really caught on so soon or if that was just a really rude question. But Klaus said she wouldn't be his type. He said she looked like a middle-aged woman with a flat chest. So, you know, I'm guessing Klaus is a boob guy. But (laughs) Klaus had also seen a man around the apartment a few times when Dorothy wasn't there who'd told him that he was her brother-in-law. And he never saw him very close up, only from afar. And detectives are like... Red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. An ugly, flat-chested, mute woman who's always traveling and whose apartment is a murder scene. And it dawned on them. There is no little old mute lady Dorothy Siner. Okay. They think this man, this supposed brother-in-law Kloss had seen, is renting the apartment and cosplaying as an old lady for some reason. And considering what happened in that apartment, it was probably not a very good reason. So investigators continue to gather evidence from the scene, including going through the trash in the alley behind the house. They took out every piece of trash, they labeled it, they photographed it, they cataloged it, and they struck gold. They found an appointment slip to pick up a pair of eyeglasses, and the appointment slip is for someone named Robert Durst. Oh, oh yeah, you said he was diabolical. (laughs) So they went to the eye clinic and they asked about Durst and they found out that he was supposed to come in on Friday to pick up his glasses. The detectives don't think there's a shot in hell that Durst will be there on Friday, but just in case, he left all his information with the woman and told her to call him if Durst came in. And then, to the detective's complete shock, he gets a call on Friday from the eye clinic (laughs) telling him 
that Robert Durst actually showed up for his appointment. He needs those peepers. <laughs> so they race over to the clinic, and just as they drive up, Durst pulls out in front of them, and they're able to pull him over. The detectives glance into the window of the car, and like the first thing they see in there is a bow saw. And they're like, you, sir, are arrested. Yeah, uh, excuse me. <laughs> Pull it over, bud. So they take him to jail, and his bond is set at $250,000. And he's like, well, what do I do? And the detectives are like, well, you know, I don't know. Do you have $250,000? And without missing a beat, Durst says, well, not on me. And they're like, who is this guy? They later find out that Durst made a phone call from the jail to a woman named Deborah, who turned out to be his wife, Deborah Charton. And he told her that he was in Galveston, Texas, and that he needed $250,000. And she said, no problem. It'll be there in the morning. But he made bail within 24 hours. Turns out, alleged body dismemberer Robert Durst is rich. Like, rich, rich. And that's when detectives discovered who Robert Durst really was. His friends and family call him Bob or Bobby. I am neither, so I will be calling him Robert or Durst. <laughs> we will not. <laughs> and turns out he belongs to one of the richest families in New York City. We're talking Shut up. We're talking an $880 million family dynasty. Is that like Tinder Swindler rich or what? Yeah. <laughs> like what he was trying to be. Big real estate family. They were one of the top five or six owners of property in Manhattan. So why is he in this little, like, tiny Galveston home killing people? Oh. <laughs> we will get there. The family had bought up a big chunk of midtown Manhattan, like, way back in the day before it became, you know, the tourism and media mecca that it is today. And so now the Durst organization owns eight or nine of the most prestigious buildings around Times Square and lower Manhattan including the Bank of America Tower at Bryant Park, the former Condé Nast building in Times Square, and they even developed Freedom Tower at One World Trade Center. Like, they rich, rich. How do you even do that? Like, what has not been bought or discovered yet where I can just get something at, like, ground level cheap and then just be absolutely, like, Scrooge McDuck swimming in money? There's a place in Switzerland that I know about. <laughs> okay, we'll talk offline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Robert Durst was born on April 12th, 1943, in New York City to his father Seymour and his mother Bernice. Ugh, thank God he's not a Taurus. I got real nervous. <laughs> he's the oldest of four siblings, but the only one you need to remember is Douglas, who is two years younger than him. Robert's mother died by suicide when he was seven years old, and Robert told this story about how his dad pulled him out of bed to watch her through the window as she stood on the roof in her nightgown. That can't be true. Yeah, that's what I think. He said that moment never left him, and it was reported that she fell off the roof, but that's not true. And yeah, I'm also not sure how true that story is. But after that, Robert was constantly running away, something that will continue to be a pattern later in life. They had to call the police to find him multiple times, and I think he blamed his dad for his mother's death, and he blamed him for not being around more after she died. So he's basically Richie Rich, but with this dark history. 
And that dark history did not end with his mother's suicide. So while police are investigating Robert for the murder of Morris Black, they discover that that might not have been his first murder. Because back in 1982, his wife, Kathleen, disappeared. She has never been found. And remember, we're in 2001 now at this point. Right. She's never been found. And when I was doing the initial research into this over the summer, the case remained unsolved. I kind of changed in September 2021, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, whoa, it got 21 years to get. Kathleen Durst, who went by Kathy, was an incredibly smart woman, very outgoing and very social. She got along really well with people. She met Robert in the fall of 1971 when he was out with a group of friends. And this wasn't expressly stated in the documentary, but I did the math. And Robert had to have been around 28, and Kathy was 19. Kathy's mother says that's probably the worst thing that ever happened to Kathy was her meeting Robert. Meeting him? Yeah. Yeah. Robert at the time had no interest in getting involved in his family's real estate business. He said he just wanted to move to Vermont and open a health food store. Hey, well, that should be in sign one that this man was probably a sociopath. If he's like, well, I'm going to forego the 88 mil, whatever, 880, 880 million. million. And, I, I and open know. a Whole Foods. <laughs> like, I don't know. I kind of think that I would like that. Like, he's not like, you know, hung up on money. And yeah, I probably would too, like pre-student loans. But here we are. And I think it's crazy. <laughs> yes. After two dates, Robert asked Kathy to come with him to Vermont, and she loved the idea and agreed to come. <laughs> I know that we're just coming off the Tinder Swindler episode, but this feels like the <laughs> 80s version of that. Except it's all true. He really is filthy rich. It, and he's like, come with me to Vermont instead of what was the, <laughs> what was the place he took her? Belize? No, I don't know. Oh, Bulgaria. Bulgaria. <laughs> By 1973, they were married. But then something changed. After they got married, Robert decided to sell the health food store and move back to New York. His father had expectations of him taking over the family business. And even though he really didn't want anything to do with it and he knew nothing about it, he wanted to please his father. He ended up working for the Durst family business until like the mid-90s. And during that time, he had various important sounding titles, but he really didn't do a whole lot of work. At a certain point, he just stopped showing up there altogether. In the meantime, Kathy started going to medical school at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I did not know that existed. Where is that? In New York, I think. New York? Mm -hmm. Robert and Kathy started having some issues, the biggest being that Robert just couldn't get along with her family. Kathy's mom said she would try to have conversations with him, but he just wouldn't engage with her. She called him an oddball. Kathy was upset that Robert couldn't put up with her family, who all treated him very nicely and respectfully for just a couple of hours. A couple of nights before she disappeared, Kathy had been with her friend Geraldine, and they were talking about Kathy's plans for the next day when she and Robert were supposed to go up to their lake house in South Salem. It's like about an hour's drive away from their apartment in New York, and Kathy was telling Geraldine that she really didn't want to go. Geraldine suggested that she just tell Robert that she doesn't want to go. And Kathy looked at her like she was insane and said, are you kidding? He'd kill me. Hmm. Her friend Gilberta also had a story to tell of a night when Kathy called her and said she needed someplace to go. 
Gilberta was having a dinner party for her family that night, and she told Kathy to come by anyway. Gilberta said she watched Kathy all night on the phone with Robert, with him insisting that Kathy come home, and she said she was visibly shaken after the phone calls. Eventually, Kathy got ready to leave, but she asked Gilberta to promise her that if something happened, she'd check it out. And she said that she was afraid of Robert. What does that mean? Like if something happened to her. Would you let me leave if I said that to you? Like if we were at Chelsea's and I was like, hey, I'm going to go home. But if something like, you know, happens to me, will you like poke around a little? One, I already know you would. But two, would you let me just go? Would you let me stop you? I don't know. I mean, I would hope. I would think so. But that's probably only because I've listened to 73 of these stories at this point. I think at this point, their relationship had been so volatile for so long that... Mm. It was normalized? Yeah, I think so for her. I think maybe these were cries for help. Like, mm-hmm. he's gonna, he, he'll kill me, you know, check it out if something happens to me. But I think maybe she didn't really know the danger that she was in. I don't know. I mean, I'm not blaming her. I just, I. No, I, I know you're like, not. I know you're not. You're, you were blaming like Gilberta. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I guess she's not my people of the week. <laughs> that was quick. No, I just, I just wonder what you would, you know. I think that we are all so often guilty of the, it's not going to happen to me. Yeah. Syndrome, you know. We hear about these horrible things that happen, but when we see signs of them happening, we're like, I'm just being dramatic. I'm just being paranoid. Things are going to be fine because they're always fine. I'm not going to be like one of the few that this happens to, you know? Right. And then you don't, you don't realize that it's not just a few. Gilberta said, of course. But today, looking back, she says she she just didn't get it at the time. She just didn't get, like, what Kathy was saying to her in that moment. Mm-hmm. She didn't get it. And I think probably also Kathy hid a lot of how their relationship was. Like, she's not going to Gilberta and telling her every time they have a terrible fight, you know? She's keeping right. that to herself. She's hiding a lot of it. So, like, her friends know something's off, but they don't know, like – how bad it is. Soon after, Gilberta and Kathy had plans to meet up in the city. She waited and waited for her, but Kathy never showed up, and she knew something was wrong. Robert Durst is the one who filed the missing persons report. Oh, uh, you know, classic move here. (laughs) Yes. When they do that. He says he got a call from the medical school saying that she hadn't been to her classes for several days. And it wasn't until then that he realized something was wrong. He went down to the precinct in person on Thursday, February 4th, 1982, saying that Kathy hadn't been seen since Sunday, January 31st. Bob said that on that day, they'd gone to the South Salem grocery store to get a newspaper. They'd come home for breakfast. And then Kathy had gone out to Gilberta's later that day, around 3.30 or 4. And she returned around 7.30 and appeared to have been drinking, but he said that he didn't think she was drunk. When she came home, she announced that she wanted to go back to the city, to their penthouse apartment on Riverside Drive, and she was taking the car. And since it was clear to Robert that she'd been drinking, he said he wouldn't give her the keys. 
he wouldn't let her drive. And finally, she agreed to take the 917 train back to the city. He says he took her to the train station, he watched her get on the train, and then he went back to his house in South Salem. He saw his neighbor, Bill Mayer, and he had a drink with him, and then he went for a walk. And he called Kathy from a payphone around 11 or 11.15 that night. She told him she was fine and she was watching TV. And after that, he walked home and went to sleep. He had no idea anything was wrong with Kathy until the school called him a few days later saying she hadn't been coming to class. I'm confused. They don't live. He yeah. was at the house in South Salem, the lake house, and she wanted yeah, to leave. she wanted to go to Riverside. Yeah. And so he just like drove her to the train station instead of like going with her to their home. Places. South Salem's like an hour outside of New York City. That must be nice. When I get mad at my boyfriend, I just go like eat Taco Bell in a parking lot somewhere <laughs> for an hour, cool off. Or go to your like your, the second bedroom in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Durst had a lawyer named Nick Scarpetta who was very well connected. He used to be the assistant district attorney before going into criminal defense. And Scarpetta hired this private investigator named Ed Wright, who had been the chief investigator for the NYPD's Organized Crimes Task Force. And I think he might have been still working for the NYPD while he's working for the Durst family as a private investigator. Robert says that Ed Wright was brought on to find Kathy, like he'd hired her to find her. But between Scarpetta's and Wright's connections with the NYPD, they were able to get a lot of information from the police about their investigation, which meant that Robert could really stay ahead of the investigation and make sure that the police really didn't look too hard into this. Hmm. Like protecting himself, obviously. No, of course not. He didn't kill his own wife. Who would do that? Uh, like every other person you've told me about on the show. <laughs> never. That's never been a thing. So Ed Wright went about trying to find Kathy, but all he managed to find were omissions and inconsistencies in Robert's story. Like his story changed about when he called Kathy three different times. And it turns out that he never spoke with Kathy. In the documentary, Robert said that he figured that telling the police that story about talking to Kathy from the payphone that night, it would put Kathy in the city. And that would make the police leave him alone. But he did not actually speak to her that night. Police did attempt to fact check Robert's story of the night that Kathy went missing. They talked to the neighbor, Bill Mayer, who told police that he did not have a drink with Robert Durst that night. He hadn't even seen him that night. And again, in the documentary, Robert's like, yeah, no, I, I lied. I didn't go to the mayor's. So Robert's in this documentary. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He saw the movie about him, loved it. Yeah. Told Jarecki he wants to be interviewed. They interviewed him for 20 hours in this documentary. I guess, I mean, I heard you say that at the beginning, but I guess I didn't realize that this movie, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just feel like I'm getting there, okay? Yes. Got a lot of pre-context. No, I'm glad I'm glad you're asking questions because it's a lot. This story is a lot. So I want to make sure that you're keeping up with it. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm keeping up. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. So he said that he took Kathy to the train station and then he just went home and went to sleep. And he said he told police that he'd been at the mayor's because he was hoping that it would just make everything go away. He said he wasn't expecting the police to actually look into his story. He expected him to just take his word for it and move on. Ew. Okay, I guess this is what feels confusing about it, mm-hmm. is like he's talking now. Yes. About, but I'm learning the story as like it's happening, but then he's like telling us that when he lied. Yes. I mean, what a, yeah, what a creep. Yeah, I know. And I debated like when I wanted you to have certain information, like when, like, yeah. Should I save all that for like part two? But then I was like, you're not going to remember that he said he went to the mayor's. I'm going to have to be like, remember when I said that he went to the mayor's? Right. Well, he lied. <laughs> you'll be like, <laughs> you lied. never saw that coming. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting. Like, I don't understand when people don't check out their – like, don't say you went and got a drink with the neighbor and then you're not cluing the neighbor in or he's not willing to vouch for you. Well, and I think like, it's also important to remember that Robert Durst is from one of the most powerful families in yeah. the country, you know? That is true. I think that he really did just expect to be able to tell the police his story and for them to take his word for it and just leave him alone, you know? And he's mm-hmm. like, I didn't think they were going to ask the neighbor if he'd had a drink with me. Like, I thought that this would show that I have an alibi and they would just go and look for Kathy, is what he's saying. Because he had nothing to do with it. Right. I know you missed this segment of the podcast, but you know who I'm picturing? Who are you picturing? Which I hate because I love this character. Okay. And I don't want to associate him with this, but just all of the high-power New York stuff. Uh, Chuck Bass. <laughs> But like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I could see it. N- nothing like him, no, but it would make the story a lot cooler. <laughs> I mean, now he looks horrifying. Like, that's him old. Ew. Yeah. He's just a little old man. I take back everything I said. That is no Chuck Bass. Yeah. So the elevator operator of their building on Riverside, his name was Eddie Lopez, and he confirmed that Kathy made it to the building around 1130 that night, and he'd taken her up to their penthouse. This is the story that the police get. So they think for sure Kathy has made it to the city. You know, she's not, he didn't Mm -hmm. kill her in South Salem. He couldn't have because she made it to the city. 
But Ed Wright also spoke with the doorman. Remember, Ed Wright's the private investigator that was working for Mm -hmm. Robert's lawyer. He spoke with the doorman who told him that the last time he'd seen Kathy had been a few days before she disappeared. And he said that Eddie Lopez was a pretty big drinker and had told him a few days later that he couldn't be sure that he'd actually seen her on that day. Ed Wright's report was never shared with police, and he was fired as the Durst family private investigator pretty soon after. Yeah, I bet. Probably because his report was like, hey, Robert Durst killed this woman. <laughs> like, set up all this <laughs> hey, shit. You don't love these facts. But Kathy was also heard from the next morning. She was in her fourth year of medical school, and she was supposed to have a clinic that morning. But she called the dean of the medical school to tell them that she wasn't feeling well and she wouldn't make it to the clinic. And that was the last time anyone had any contact with her. She just vanished five months before achieving a lifelong dream of becoming a doctor. (sighs) There was no body, no crime scene, no telephone activity, no checking account activity, or credit card activity. She was just gone. Police at the time seemed to think this was all perfectly normal. Obviously, Kathy had just gotten tired of Robert, and in the words of the lead detective who said this in the documentary, she was just shacked up with some other guy. They say it just uh, it just happens all the time. Oh, Gab, it just happens all the time. The word, do they use the word shacked? Yeah. My notes have quotations around them. I, you know, I think I watched it in June, so it's <laughs> been a minute. I'm like, oh, it happens all the time where women leave their husbands and then don't speak to any of their friends or family and they just ditch out of med school in the fourth year without a backward glance. Like that just happens all the time. All the time. All the time. All the time. But they went on the record saying that there was no evidence at the time to suspect foul play. Detectives did look into the state of their marriage, but to them, that seems to mean like they just asked Robert how it was going between them. And he said they might have had, you know, the occasional argument, like all couples, but they were fine. This is different than the time where it's like, you know, were you happy in your marriage? Well, like, they probably think it's fine, you know? Like, I mean, he obviously knew that there was issues, but right. I hate when they, like, ask that, like. Right. Because, like, what's it, fine? That, what's an occasional argument look like? Does that does that occasional argument mean, like, you're pushing her down the stairs? Well, and newsflash. If you're arguing in your relationship or marriage, you're probably not agreeing on the state of how you both think it's going. You're probably arguing about that. So Right. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah. We disagree on everything and it's abusive, but we agree on the state of how things are. I mean, that's just not. Right. How dumb. Right. And Kathy's friends and family said just the opposite. They said that Kathy was afraid of Robert, that he'd hit her multiple times, pushed her, hurt her, and their fights had gotten worse. There were two neighbors, Anne and Kevin Doyle. They lived in the adjacent penthouse from the Durst in their apartment building in Manhattan. And they told Mm -hmm. police that during a fight one night, they had seen Kathy crawl out of the apartment window wearing her pajamas, climbed around a parapet to the Doyle's terrace. And then begged them to let her in. I wish I was fancy enough to know what a parapet is, but um, it sounds dangerous. Yeah, it does. She told them that Robert had threatened her with a gun, that he'd beaten her, and that he'd wanted her to sign her rights away to the Durst fortune. Kevin went over later to talk to Robert, who said that none of that had happened. He hadn't done any of that. 
They all told the detectives about all these incidents of violence and threats, but they felt like the detectives didn't really care what they had to say. This is a quote from the detective about Kathy's friends and family. At a certain point, they got redundant. You know, if something happens to me, it was Bob. Blah, blah, blah. I roll. I love your uh, impressions. <laughs> <laughs> can always count on that. Oh, God. I hate that guy. Kathy had a diary that detailed a lot of these physical altercations. It also detailed a time that Kathy became pregnant. Robert didn't want children. He said they had an agreement that they wouldn't have children. And so Robert said, well, it's your fault that you got pregnant. You're in charge of all that stuff, not me. And so if you decide to keep this baby, you will be getting a divorce from me. Like, that's what he said. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So. Because I had sex with myself. Right, right. Uh Uh-huh. So Kathy had an abortion. And that's when their relationship changed, according to Robert. He says in the documentary that he didn't want kids around because he thought he'd be a jinx. And he knew he wouldn't be a good father. Which is one reason that the documentary is called The Jinx. Kathy's friends and family were frustrated about getting the brush off from police and for the lack of investigation by the police. So they decided to do their own investigation. Yes, please. Gilberta would ride the train back and forth and back and forth asking people if they'd seen Kathy. She would go to the hospital with her picture to ask if she was in the building. They would go out to the reservoir looking for tire tracks. Like, they were really doing the hard work. And I don't know what Mm -hmm. the police are doing, like, just twiddling their thumbs and waiting for her to show up, I guess. Yeah. A little over a month after Kathy's disappearance, Gilberta upped her investigation to the next level. She called up her friend, Ellen Strauss, and she was like, do you want to go up to the Durst house in South Salem and go through the trash and see what we can find? And Ellen was like, hell yeah. Why don't you ever call me with shit like that? (laughs) You would never do it. And my friend has I, not gone missing. So if my friend goes missing, I will call you up to come look through the trash with me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to hide a body, but. Yeah. But dig, like dig I'll through, dig some, through trash. some shit. Sure. Yeah. So the two of them went to the house in South Salem and they stole the garbage and they took it back home and they dumped it all out. They spread everything out. And that's when they realized that Robert was throwing out Kathy's stuff. It was her clothes, her books, her makeup. It was all in this pile of garbage. And then they found a piece of paper in Robert's handwriting that gave them goosebumps. What? It was a list of words. And this is the list. Just straight down this piece of paper. Town dump. Bridge. Dig. Boat. Other. Shovel or question mark. Check car trunk slash rent. This list sounded a lot like a list of ideas for someone trying to dispose of a body. Yeah, but who writes them down? Robert Durst. (laughs) (laughs) They bring it to the police, but they were like, nah, the ground was too cold to dig up anything with a shovel in February, so that can't be what this list is. Okay. And that's when all her friends and family realized that he was going to get away with this. They knew that Robert had done something to Kathy, and there wasn't much else that they could do about it. Robert's family wasn't working with them. They seemed completely uninterested in the fact that their daughter or sister-in-law had disappeared in the most bizarre of circumstances. 
And Kathy's case pretty much ended there for now. Uh, oh. <laughs> wow. After Kathy's disappearance, Robert continued to work for the Durst family business, at least on paper. And, you know, he probably had some placard on the door. Until his younger brother, Douglas. Douglas. Was chosen by their father to run the business instead of Robert. It's like Chuck Bass. What what happened? <laughs> by that time, Robert was barely showing up to work. He'd hardly done anything for the business in 20 years. So I don't really know what he was expecting. But once that decision was made where he'd gotten passed over, he officially quit. Robert and Douglas had never gotten along. There was a sibling rivalry between them that was made much worse by this competition of who was going to run this billion-dollar business. Yeah, all the money. <laughs> right. I guess Robert just thought that it was going to be handed to him, but Douglas had been putting in the work. After Robert made bail in Galveston, his brother Douglas ended up hiring two bodyguards for protection. He was afraid of his brother. Robert says he has no idea why Douglas would be afraid of him but it was probably the fact that he'd been stalking him. There was this one day while Robert was on the run when he was had fled New York to come to Galveston that he pulled into Douglas's driveway with two guns in his car. Douglas said he knew that Robert was out to kill him, and apparently Deborah, Robert's current wife, would egg him on, telling him how Douglas had screwed him out of his birthright, how he'd taken the business from him, how he'd been planning. Well, Deborah, chill. We don't need that energy right now. We got He's doing it all on his own. Right, for sure. She's like, he's trying to destroy you, Robert, and embarrass you. Oh, well, that was a new voice <laughs> that we haven't had here. I don't know how I felt about it. It needs a little fine-tuning. It's really but... nothing how she sounds either because she's like <laughs> yeah. a real estate mogul of her own right. So he got those bodyguards, Douglas. Douglas is a multi-multi-multi-millionaire, and I just need to point out that his New York City home is connected by a wall to a funeral home. It showed it in the documentary. Why? That's the house he bought. If you can live literally <laughs> anywhere, if you have money to literally live anywhere, yeah. that does not have to be an option. Right. You're not I would uh, be, why, were, why are you choosing next door to the funeral home? You are you sharing I'm an zero HVAC sleep. with them? <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. getting zero sleep. No. Ew. Uh, yeah. HVAC. But 20 years went by with no news about Kathy. And then a guy named Timothy Martin was convicted of several counts of public lewdness. You might wonder what this has to do with anything. Well, I'll tell you. Before he was sentenced, in an attempt to get some leniency on his sentence, he reached out to police and said that he had information he wanted to share about a murder in Westchester. He'd heard on good authority that Kathleen Durst had never made it to Manhattan. She'd been murdered by her husband at their cottage in Salem and buried in Westchester, which is like halfway between South Salem and New York. So what, that doorman was just paid off? Well, the doorman told Ed Wright that he hadn't seen Kathy in like four days and that the elevator operator who said he'd taken her to his apartment that night was like a big old drunk. And Oh, the elevator operator. Yeah, and that he wasn't okay, even yeah. positive that he'd seen her there. But the police didn't get that information. That went into yeah. Ed's report, and they never shared that with police. Mm -hmm. But they probably just would have said, like, well, he said he probably saw her, so probably he did. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of this guy's story didn't check out. 
But this tip meant that a new group of detectives was taking a look at this old file. At the time, Janine Pierrot, 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 <laughs> Janine Pierrot. How's it spelled? Fox News Janine was the district attorney. Oh, that? <laughs> that Janine. So now she's in Fox. Well, she's Judge Janine on Fox. So, oh, yeah, big talking head. She was the district attorney at the time in Westchester County, New York, which is where South Salem is. And she looked at the evidence that was there, and she decided that this case had to be reopened. It obviously had not been investigated very well. It was October 31st, 2000, when Robert heard that Janine Pirot was coming after him and that Kathy's case was going to be reopened. He got scared, he went into defense mode, and he decided that he needed to run. It's kind of a pattern with Robert. Instead of dealing with stuff, he runs. But he yeah. needed someone to take care of his affairs while he was in hiding, and that's where Deborah Charitin comes into play. What affairs? His money, financial stuff, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Deborah is the president of a property management company in New York, and he'd been good friends with her since like 1988. At this point, she was possibly the only person that he really trusted. So, the day after Robert got the news about Kathy's case, he bought her a $77,000 ring, married her, and made her his power of attorney. What does that look like? A $77,000 ring? Mm-hmm. Gaudy. You think it looks big like and this? gaudy. I think it looks big and gaudy. I think yours looks more like a $20 million ring. $77 million, you got to put like $14,000 Million? $77,000, not million. You're correct. You said yes, seventy-seven thousand. Okay, like, oh my god! God. <laughs> Joe Bassero was the detective assigned to the reopening of Kathleen's case, and he started calling around to Kathleen's friends and family, like letting them know he was looking into it. And they were all just stunned and excited at the news. Like they hoped that this might mean that Kathy would finally get justice. That twenty years later, they might have a resolution to this. Yeah. Detectives went back to the lake house in South Salem, which was now owned by someone else. Back when Kathy had disappeared, neither the house nor the lake had ever even been searched because she made it to New York. Like, why are we going to yeah. go to South Salem? No, never even been there, never looked there, nothing. Yeah, they had no reason to, allegedly. Right. So now detectives' biggest hope is that they'll be able to find, like, the murder weapon hidden there somewhere in the house or something. And this time, they, like, really look for it. They dig through walls. They find a spot in the back of a closet that the new owner didn't even know was there. Oh, a crawl space? Yeah, but nothing turns up. They also had divers do a search of the lake, but they found nothing of evidentiary value. It was a big disappointment for the new investigators, but it wasn't the end of the road. A senior investigator with the DA's office, Ed Murphy, he decided to explore the case and just see what they could do. And so they started out by re-interviewing everyone who was interviewed 20 years before. And as they're doing all these interviews, as they're talking to all of Kathy's friends and family, they ask them if they knew of anyone else that they should speak to, that someone who might know something about her disappearance. And one by one, every single one of them said the same name. They all said, you need to go talk to Susan Berman. This wasn't new. 
They'd said the same thing to investigators at the time of Kathy's disappearance. One of her friends even drew the police a map to Susan's front door. They all knew that if anyone knew something about Kathy's disappearance, it would be Susan. Susan was one of Robert Durst's closest friends, possibly his closest friend. So they were hooking up? I highly doubt it. Okay. They were just because he... No, he is not Chuck Bass. (laughs) He's not Chuck Bass. They were so close that Robert was actually the one that gave Susan away at her wedding in 1984. And she had- Well, don't. (laughs) I know. I was about to say I felt bad and I was like, no, I don't. And she'd worked really hard to protect him from the press during Kathy's disappearance. They'd been friends since college. They'd bonded over the fact that both of them had a parent die when they were very young. Susan also came from a very rich family, but her family was mob rich. Oh, that's like rich and dangerous. Right. As in- Like more dangerous than normal. Correct. As in her dad was David Berman, member of organized crime group Murder, Inc., and the person responsible for bringing gambling to Vegas, along with his partner, famous mobster Bugsy Siegel. So no Joseph Bastonian sidekick <laughs> Joe Maglione. <laughs> the tough Tony Bastonian Joe Maglione. No, That's just David hoping. Berman and Bugsy Siegel. <laughs> yeah, okay. David had died when Susan was around 12, and so she grew up with her dad, like, high up on this pedestal. Susan was incredibly proud of her father. She even had his mugshot framed and hanging on her wall in her living room. That's cute. I mean, I don't hate it. Like, I kind of do think it's cute. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what do you do when your dad's a mobster? I don't know. I know. And he dies when you're young, you know. <sighs> Anyways, when she met Robert, she, I think she figured, like, here's a man as rich and powerful as her father, and she connected with him. I think she transferred that same loyalty that she had for her father to Robert, and she felt like she and Robert had this very special friendship and that he needed her. She likes the bad boy, you know? She likes the bad boy. It's a little bad boy daddy issue situation. It's fine. Right. When Kathy disappeared back in 1982, Susan basically became Robert's spokesperson. She dealt with the press for him, and she started dropping all these little nuggets of information, planting the seed that Kathy was alive and well in Manhattan. Susan was the one that had told the newspapers that the doorman of Kathy's building had seen her arrive at the penthouse Sunday night. And that was the last time she'd been seen. She told other media that Kathy had called in sick to her medical school on Monday morning, and that that was the last time that anybody had spoken to her. In the police's mind, Kathy had made it to Manhattan, and so they didn't give another look at Robert Durst. But Kathy's friends and family are convinced that she never made it out of South Salem, because there's no credible evidence at all that she ever left or that she ever made it to Manhattan. Was the only evidence the elevator, man? And that she called the school the next but morning. But she called from a payphone, right? Or no? No, I don't think they know where she called from. She just said that she was sick okay. and couldn't make it. But mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, I guess the only evidence that, because I don't know if they know where that call actually right. came from. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So like a shoddy drunk. Witness. Right. Right. They knew that Kathy and Robert had a very volatile relationship, her friends and family. 
so volatile that Kathy had wanted a divorce. She'd even gotten a divorce attorney. And the Thursday before her disappearance, Robert had turned down a settlement agreement. They were certain that Robert killed her in South Salem. No one knows how he did it, but they all know Kathy didn't get on that train like he said. They suspect that Robert killed her in South Salem and then put her in the trunk of his car. The car was also never searched. Do we know where the car is? 20 years later? No. Yeah. Robert Durst has always maintained that he had absolutely nothing to do with what happened to Kathy. He says he suspects she's probably dead since she hasn't been found in all this time, hasn't turned up, but he doesn't know for sure that she's dead. So he just admits to lying about certain pieces of the story. Right, just to protect himself, just so the police would just leave him alone. Mm -hmm. Investigators do a phone sweep of Robert Durst and the Durst organization, and they see that there were two collect calls that came into the Durst organization from Ship Bottom, New Jersey, on the Tuesday after Kathy's disappearance. Only two people ever made collect calls to the Durst organization, and that was Robert and his father, Seymour. And they knew that Seymour was not in Ship Bottom that day, so it had to be Robert. And they tracked the calls to a payphone in a coin-operated laundromat in Ship Bottom, New Jersey. Robert said he was not in Ship Bottom. When they asked him about it in the documentary, he was like, oh, right, like, that's along the coast, isn't it? (laughs) He said he had no idea who made the calls, but according to Robert, there were several other people who made collect calls besides him and Seymour. And whether or not Robert was in Ship Bottom that day is important because the Pine Barrens are only about 45 minutes out from Ship Bottom, and there is so much space to dump a body there. If you don't know, the Pine Barrens is over a million acres of dense forest. It's rural, mostly undisturbed, and it's massive. It's actually a very common dumping ground for the mob. And this is in New Jersey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always, like, give Russell a hard time. I'm like, why is that called the Garden State? Anything I've seen is just, like, concrete. But you're telling me there's a million acres of pine there? 1.1 million. Yes. That's wild. Yes. I, like, my brain doesn't compute that. So it's actually a very common dumping ground for the mob and who has ties to organized crime and would know that the Pine Barrens would be a good dumping ground, Susan Berman. Right. So investigators are like, okay, we've really got to go talk to Susan Berman and see what she has to say. And they call her and she actually agrees to meet with them. And so they get a meeting scheduled and everything. But in the meantime, Susan was just telling everyone that the police was just out to get Bobby and she remained loyal to him. I need her to not call him Bobby. That's what I need. I know. And then, just days before that meeting with police was supposed to take place, Susan Berman was murdered. Oh, what? Yeah. Excuse me? It was December 24th, 2000, Christmas Eve, when patrol officers responded to a tip that there was a body at Susan's house in Los Angeles. Officers saw the back door open, entered, and that's when they discovered Susan's body lying on the floor of the bedroom with a gunshot wound to the head, like execution style. She was pronounced dead at 1.48 p.m. When the Daily News reported on Susan's murder, all of Kathy's friends and family were stunned and pissed. 
They told police repeatedly to go talk to her for 20 years. She was like the one person besides Robert who probably knew exactly what had happened to Kathy Durst. And now she would be taking those secrets to the grave. And what interesting timing for Susan's murder. Killed right before she was supposed to meet with police. But Robert Durst was not a suspect in the case initially. And that's because of what the crime looked like. She wasn't just murdered. She was executed. It was a single gunshot wound to the back of the head, which looked like a traditional mob-style hit. And Susan was a prolific journalist that had been writing about the mob for a long time. And at the time, she was working on some big story about the Vegas mob. And she'd said something big was going to happen that she couldn't talk about yet. So police really only focused on the mob angle. Yeah, they thought that was who did it. Who had done it, right. But that meant ignoring evidence at the crime scene that pointed towards Susan knowing her murderer, like the fact that her front door was secured with deadbolt locks and there was no sign of forced entry. And then there was that tip, the one that let police know that there was a body at the house. It was actually a note mailed to police, postmarked the day before the discovery of Susan's body, December 23rd. The note just gave Susan's address, 1527 Benedict Canyon, and then said the word cadaver. That's all that was on this note. Oh my God, what? Yeah. The envelope was addressed to the Beverly Hills police, but Beverly was spelled wrong. It was spelled L-E-Y when Beverly Hills is spelled L-Y. The note meant that whoever killed Susan, they wanted her found. They didn't want her body to sit at the house and decompose, which sounds like someone who cares about her on some level. Yeah, but like, mm, no? So there are, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and say that everything I'm about to say comes from episodes of Criminal Minds. So according to my sources, i.e. Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds episodes. And actually, no, I have heard profilers talk about this too, that when there are certain signs that killers use to show remorse, they might cover a body and not leave it exposed. They might like try to do something to make it more comfortable. There's a pillow, whatever. And that shows remorse. And that usually shows like it's somebody that knew them or like was fond of them for some reason, you know. And like the mob's not sending a note with cadaver written on it to let the police know there's a body there, you know. So eventually the mob was dismissed as a suspect. The police found evidence that Susan was having some, like, major financial difficulties. In her house, police found a ledger of names of people that had sent her money. In the weeks and months before her death, she'd been reaching out to friends and business associates asking for money. She was months behind in rent, but she kept thinking she'd get through it. She wrote a lot of screenplays, so she had a lot of meetings, but none of the screenplays were ever bought. And Susan was getting desperate. And she knew how to manipulate people to get the things she wanted, and she was really good at it. According to the ledger, Robert Durst had recently sent her $50,000. And police started to wonder if this was like a blackmail payoff. You know, had Susan gotten so desperate that she'd started threatening to expose her closest friend? Friends of Susan said they absolutely could see her making that threat to Robert, but phrased in a, 
You know, I could really use the money and it would be great if you'd help me out, especially after all I did to help you out, you know, kind of way. When Susan's funeral came around, everyone expected Robert to be there. You know, she was his closest friend, but he never showed up. Afterwards, he called around to her friends and family to like commiserate about Susan, but it seemed to a lot of them that he was trying to make allies in Susan's camp. And that even though he sounded very sad and he was being sympathetic and asking what he could do, they felt like he wasn't being sincere. Susan's son, her stepson, Sarab, he disagreed. He said, no way should Robert be a suspect. It doesn't make any sense. He and Robert became very close after Susan died, and he just like refused to listen to the rest of his family when they told him how they're fairly certain that Robert was involved in her murder. Right. And they tried to tell Sarah, like, hey, you know, he's suspected of being involved in his wife's disappearance. And Susan knew about the disappearance, and now she's dead right after the case was reopened. And that cannot be a coincidence. I didn't even think about that part. Right. But Sarah didn't care. He thought, yes, it is a coincidence. That might have something to do with the fact that Robert had offered to, like, pay for Sarah to go to college. He said he would give him. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Right. He said he would give him $25,000 every year for four years to go to college. But I don't think he ever actually got that money because shortly after that, Robert had run off to Galveston and pretended to be a mute old lady before murdering and dismembering his elderly neighbor. Yeah, which like more on that, right? Right. In part (laughs) two. Oh, no. (laughs) That brings us to the... End of part one. We will tie everything up next week in part two. Or if you join our Patreon at the $5 level or above, you can listen to part two over there right this very minute. It's there waiting for you. For those of you that are going to, you know, listen to part two right away, which is probably going to be everybody that we'd be shouting out, (laughs) we're going to skip shout outs on this episode. So if you're waiting for your shout out, listen for it at the end of part two. Part two. And thank you so much for listening. We so appreciate you tuning in. You can find us on our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It would be so amazing if you like shared the podcast with people you think might like it. Tell your friends about it. At Creepers Pod. Those are our social handles. And that's how you can find the podcast. Oh, yeah. At Creepers Pod. I just posted cute photos of Burks while we were recording. Oh, well, not him looking like a demon. You should post that that demon picture. It's so scary. (laughs) People will love it. You can also email us at creeperspod at gmail.com if you have any feedback or case suggestions. We just love hearing from you guys. Also, we would love it, love it, love it if you'd hop onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating us a review on apple Podcasts as well we love to read them so much and they really help out the podcast in a pretty big way it's one of the few ways that we can grow the podcast so help us out there that would be amazing and yeah be sure to subscribe to true crime creepers wherever you get your podcast so you will be notified as soon as the next episode drops when i will tell mocap part two of the diabolical robert durst yeah he sucks <laughs> You have no idea. <laughs> Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs> <laughs>